Good evening. Beautiful June evening. I want to talk about some feelings that seem to be surfacing these days. Sorrow. Many of you have experienced losses of loved ones in recent months and sorrow for so many, many deaths worldwide from the coronavirus. Anxiety, anxious about the likelihood of new infections as restrictions have been lifted and people are gathering and working and anxious about the loss of jobs, food scarcity, insecure housing, and exhaustion. Exhausted by the pain we experience when we really take the blinders off and acknowledge our nation's history of genocide, slavery, and aggression toward indigenous peoples, blacks, Asians, Latinx, Jews, people with disabilities, those who are LGBTQ, and from this broader perspective, George Flynn is only the latest instance of the injustice from which 
There is no respite. So maybe feeling these things, we want to exert our privilege and take a break, turn the page, move on. But we know that for those who suffer daily from racism, both overt and subtle, there is no break. And the hypervigilance required to live one's life is unending. I remember a conversation with a black friend of mine, an artist that took place when we were first getting to know each other about 20 years ago or so. Our sons are about the same age. Jesse is 39, I think her son is 40. But their daily life experiences were and are very different. Our son goes into a store and is welcomed as a potential consumer. Her son goes into a store and is followed as a potential criminal. She said, every time he goes out, I worry he won't come home. I've given him the talk. If you're stopped by the police, show your hands are empty, be polite, don't argue. But I know, she said, that any encounter can go wrong in a minute. She's a photographer and a quilter, and one of her museum shows was a series depicting 
all the young black men killed within just a few years' time here in Syracuse. So much as we'd like to turn away, we know that we can no longer ignore the abuse of power that allows such killings to occur over and over. Or the poverty that results in what we all now know is the disproportionate number of cases and deaths from COVID-19 in Black, Latinx, and Indigenous communities. We also know that this moment of heightened awareness and shared pain throughout the land, really throughout the world, can lead to systemic change. A change of the sort that is essential for our nation to be a true land of liberty. As Buddhist practitioners, walking the Eightfold Path and upholding for great vows, we have a responsibility But in order to fulfill this responsibility, feeling overwhelmed at times, we need to be kind to ourselves and of course, since we are not separate entities, this kindness flows naturally to others, unselfconsciously. When President Obama was 
at the East Asia Summit in 2016, the fall. He addressed the people of Laos and he said, in countless stupas and in your daily lives, we see the strength that draws so many of you from your Buddhist faith. A faith that tells you that you have a moral duty to each other to live with kindness and honesty and that we can help end suffering if we embrace the right mindset and the right actions. These words were spoken by the President of the United States. Excuse me. Indeed, we have a moral duty to each other. And it's one that comes straight out of our faith. When we feel overwhelmed by grief, anxiety and exhaustion that's a sign that we've gotten caught up in a dualistic outlook that our concerns for justice and peace have been addressed from a whirlpool of emotional reactivity to what we see going on around us. So yes, as Obama said, we need to embrace the right mindset the right actions of the Buddha's way. And this is not something we can decide to do. It's not something that is done through the intellect. It can only come through embodying the moment we're in, 
through being in this very body. This Buddha body. So we sit down. We stop all of that conceptual confusion. We exhale. And we breathe in the sacred oneness at the source of the 10,000 things. Now you know, perhaps it doesn't happen right away. Perhaps we sit there feeling disconsolate, disempowered, tearful, unfocused, lacking in motivation, or just plain numb. And that's okay. There is no ladder of success or badge of merit in Buddhist practice. We just sit in the murkiness of it all. Just accepting how this moment is. Realizing that as soon as we've identified it as being something, as soon as we've judged it as being wanting or too much, it's already gone. It's already completely different. And we're still bemoaning it. This practice requires a sense of humor, okay? Right in the midst of our tears. What? Really? So as we sit with this acceptance, the discomfort, our sense of inadequacy, of the insufficiency of what we thought we should be and have. We just sit and little by little, this great miracle occurs.
without even knowing anything, without any conceptual definition, grasping, or categorizing, something happens. And we feel at home again, right where we are. And we discover that we've returned to the wholehearted, clarified mind. to the threefold refuge, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. As Hakuin Zenji reminds us, sentient beings, including each of us, are fundamentally Buddhas. So you might say the quintessential point of our practice is to awaken not to something above or beyond, but to who we are who we truly are by nature. Therefore, because of this, we can address what needs our attention not from personal views, conditioned reflexes, learned opinions, but with the wisdom and discernment of the clear mirror mind. The other evening, Andy and I took a break. We watched a documentary made in 2018 of Fred Rogers, an original American bodhisattva. And we were brought back to our son's early years when the three of us would watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood with its long moments of silence on TV, silence 
nothing was being sold, just silence. And then he would futz around with something, tie his sneakers, zip up his sweater, not zip up his sweater because he couldn't get the zipper to work. And it was such a clunky, completely unsophisticated, remarkably slow-paced evocation of everyday wonder. Fred Rogers, with utmost kindness and a sincere belief that he was mocked for by those given to irony, really underlined the right of every child to be loved exactly as he or she was. He just gave completely of himself. And at the same time, in this quiet way of his, he addressed difficult subjects of his time and our time in the most natural way. As some of you may remember, he hired a black actor named Francois Clemens to play the role of a policeman. And as Clemens says emphatically in the documentary, that was not a role I wanted to play. I didn't have any friendly feelings toward the police. But with Fred's encouragement, he became Officer Clemens. And in 1969, just a year after the show began, there was an episode, some of you may remember, where Fred Rogers was sitting with a little waiting pool in front of him. And he took off his socks and sneakers and was spraying his feet. And Officer Clemens came by and he said, would you like to join me? And Officer Clemens said, well, I, I don't have a towel. And Fred said, well, here, you can share mine. Now, you may also remember that that was the year that the Supreme Court ruled that pools could no longer be segregated by race, 1969. And a clip in the documentary shows 
some black kids splashing around in a pool and some white adults pouring dangerous chemicals into the water in which they were swimming. So nothing overtly was said by Fred Rogers or Francois Clemens, but the point was made. And the scene was repeated when they were both about 24 years older in a 1993 episode. Unfortunately, this doesn't get outdated. This business of racism in all aspects of society. And when I saw that episode, I was reminded of a scene from my own childhood when I was seven or eight. My parents and I had gone to Boone, North Carolina, where my stepfather spent a week painting. And around the side of a building, I saw a sign over a water cooler that said, colored. So with excitement, at the thought of a rainbow fountain emerging, I asked my mother if we could go turn it on. And I still remember the feeling of horror I had when she told me that it was for Negroes, for colored people who weren't allowed to drink our water. So that event and many others like it during my childhood in the 1940s and 50s opened my eyes to the horrors of racism and led me later on to participate in demonstrations, in sit-ins, in a freedom ride during the civil rights movement and to be faithful in my resolve to stand up with those suffering injustice and to dedicate my life as best I could to the Jewish ideal of tikkun olam, to act with kindness, to heal, 
and repair the world. That's what we're doing. <laughs>